0: When I started this podcast, my hope was that by listening to the stories of other people going for it, you would have the courage to go for it, whatever it was for you. I wanted to encourage you to go for it because when I went for it, it completely changed my life. If you listen to episode 104 with Waterman Brian Kailana, you've heard a little bit about my story that started back in 2009. I had an awesome job, but I wanted to do something totally different. I was in a five-year relationship that I wanted out of, and I was searching for the courage to actually do something about my situation. So I started freelance writing on the side, and hearing stories of adventurers pursuing their passions, taking risks, and going for it, I started to gain the courage to pursue the life I wanted. I built up the courage to end the relationship, to quit the job, and to embark on a whole new career. I've gotten some feedback from listeners who've said that some of the things that guests come on here and talk about seem unattainable, and I totally get it. This show isn't about dangling off of cliffs or dropping into 50-foot waves or running ultra marathons, though if it inspires you to do any of these things, more power to you. But it's really about getting some inspiration to start infusing a little more adventure into your day-to-day life, to choose to start living with intention, whatever that means for you. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. In this episode, I've brought on two experts to talk about the important things in life and the art of being more okay with where you are now. Karen Rinaldi now enters the exclusive club of repeat guests. She's worked in the publishing industry for nearly three decades, and she's a publisher at Harper Wave. She's also a longtime writer herself who just published It's Great to Suck at Something, a book with an awesome title about how she learned to love sucking at surfing. It was originally published as an essay in the New York Times. First, I wanted to talk to Karen about why she decided to write this book. Well, I love this because I'm a big fan of Tikhnot Han, and I know you talk about Tikh oh, yes. in this book. But you know, they say in Buddhism that suffering is not accepting where you are right now, and that there is this ultimate freedom. When you do accept where you are right now, and I've been doing so many podcasts on self improvement and always being better, and like it can be exhausting. So sorry to you (laughs) listeners, it's not my intention. Like my intention is living wildly, is is accepting who you are and finding happiness, whatever that is. And so that's why I'm so grateful for this book. It's such a good story. You know you you've been a publisher for thirty years, published everybody's books. So many of the guests I've had on have been with Harper Wave and you know, even some of your past publishing careers. So why did you decide to write this book after 30 years of publishing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I know, I know so much about publishing that uh, talk about a leap of faith to step on to the other side. But so I've been writing longer than I was in publishing. I guess I was writing before Um, I got a job in publishing, though, you know, literature and writing and books and, you know, have always been really, really important to me. But I, weirdly, I wrote and I used to put everything away. I never wrote to publish. And and, and I'll explain why in a second. But I wrote things because I loved to write, but I sucked at it. I mean, frankly, I just I wasn't very good at it. And I knew it what good writing was because I was a, a, a reader and, you know, became an editor and publisher. And I just wasn't ready to have my stuff put out in the world until I felt like it was going to be not great, but acceptable. And I could figure I knew what that was because I was in the world. So I'd been writing and putting it away and writing and putting it away. And then I'd written a novel years ago that I put in the drawer and then a movie was made out of it, and because the movie was made from it, it was called Maggie's Plan, uh, directed by Rebecca Miller, produced, directed, written by Rebecca Miller. But it was based on my novel. And what happened? At it's <laughs> and this is kind of crazy. It kind of pulled me out of the closet as a writer. I didn't. I, I was very reluctant to publish the novel, but um, people really wanted it because they loved the movie, and so it it. it I, we wound up publishing that novel a um, couple of years ago, and it sort of opened the floodgates of, okay, maybe I'm ready to do this. And so I wrote the essay uh, for the New York Times, It's Great to Suck at Something. By the way, that, that piece was pr- like eight years in the making. Somebody had asked me when I published it. Wow. And this is great for all the people who suck out there. And, I, and I'm trying to convince you to to embrace that because someone asked me, oh, so what do you do? Just write an essay and send it to the Times and they print it? And I'm going... What? I, no, that's that's not what happens. I mean, I I tried to write that essay. Well, for like eight years, I kept writing it, throwing it out, writing it, and throwing it out. I knew I wanted to say something, but it just took me a while to find the right measure of everything. And once I hit it, I went, "Oh yeah, this is it." And then I sent it to a contact I had, you know. And then we went through the process of it, you know. It wound up getting picked up. And then what happened is that the piece got so much it, it seemed to touch a lot of people and i didn't know if it was going to make people uncomfortable you know saying hey it's great to suck at something or if people were going to say oh, yes thank you i i i suck too or i want to suck or i've been too fearful to start something and i was so full my heart was so full from the responses that i got i thought and then i talked to my agent and and my agent said that's the book that's the book that's the one you got to write and i was like okay i'm ready and that's how that that's how it happened and then i spent the next year and a half writing it
0: that's awesome i i mean i i really appreciate that because i've i've written since i was i was 15 i started writing and yeah, publishing yeah. but i've been working on this book idea that has surfing in it in costa rica and it since i was 22
1: and oh, I just yeah. put
0: it away. And I'm like, this has been over. But Jamal Yogis told me, the guy who wrote Saltwater Buddha and The Fear Project, and he's been on the podcast. But he said, yeah, I have this friend who one day took a book out of the closet and it became a movie and all this. And she, he was talking about you. So oh, this sweet. personally means a lot to me. And if any of you have something you've been working on for years, you know, maybe you shelve it. Maybe there's a life after it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean it's okay. My what I love about writing is that if if for any of the writers out there, all writers, even published writers will suck at writing. I mean, there is nothing that's going to get you more acquainted with sucking uh than writing because most of what we write we throw out. Yep. Most of what we write gets edited. Most of what we write gets put away never to see the light of day. So little of what writers write actually gets put in the world. Now, I think for journalists, it's slightly different. For creative writers, it's different. For poets, it's different. I mean, you you know, there are nuances across the spectrum of the different kinds of writing. But basically, writing's hard. And I always think of it's like surfing, like surfing, you know, what is that crazy statistic that like even good surfers, great surfers, surf about 8% of the time, that they're in the water, and partly because they have to wait for the wave. You know, we, we know the story. It's like you have to wait for the wave, and there have to be waves, and then you have to take turns, and you have to have priority, blah, blah, blah. But, like, for me, forget it. It's like 0.0008%, I mean, because I <laughs> hardly catch any waves. But, I mean, you kind of think riding and surfing, they're they are two awesome things to suck at, and you have to set your expectations low, but keep at it anyway anyway. And if you keep at it, eventually you'll write something good enough to be published. And eventually, you know, for me, I'll catch a wave and it just rocks my day. You know, my week, my, you know, I'll, I'll ride a wave in my head for weeks and weeks afterwards if I catch a good one. Mm, I, I, you don't totally suck. We surfed, we surfed together in
0: Costa Rica. <laughs> I had the joy of surfing with Karen and uh, she definitely caught some good waves. Well, with your help. So I love this book it's great to suck at something, the unexpected joy of wiping out and what it can teach us about patience, resilience, and the stuff that really matters. And I read it so fast. And it's so rare for me to read a book in a sitting, but I knew so many of the characters and the setting and it was just so awesome. So I thought you should just start with
1: reading. I love the introduction. Great. I can do that. Uh, So let's say you don't already suck at something. First of all, that's delusional. But even if it is somehow true, I'm going to show you how you're missing out on something wonderful. In this book, I'm going to encourage you to find and embrace something you suck at. I want to share with you just how great it can be to suck at something, to really, really struggle, to do something unremarkable, uncelebrated, and without much to show for it. And to do that unremarkable thing with love and with hope in your heart, to do it with joy. I know this joy firsthand because I surf, and I'm bad at it. Surfing isn't a new kick. It's not a phase. I'm not in that honeymoon period of surfing when I'm trying it out, seeing if I'll get the hang of it, romancing it. But by any objective measure, it's a big part of my life and has been for a while. I've been surfing eight months out of 12 for 17 years, and yes, to those devoted surfers out there reading this, you have every right to scoff. I've arranged my middle-aged life around getting in the water as much as I can. I chose a career path that would allow me to pursue it, risked hard-earned money to support it, and coerced my family into a lifestyle only some of us appreciate. And I still suck at surfing. But I love it, and I think in its way, it loves me back. I've put so much of myself into the waves over the years, but no matter how much I give, I always get more back. It's an unfair exchange in my favor, and it has nothing to do with my aptitude. You, too, have this potential to suck at something. It doesn't take anything more than just being yourself, having a bit of courage, a sense of humor, and a willingness to start something new or to return to something old to start growing again even if the end result won't get you in any record books this book won't make you a master of anything i love this and <laughs> i think i think for people who maybe don't surf there's so many things we can suck at oh yes it's endless this list of things we can suck at and i think any anything any any hobby any interest it doesn't even have to be physical it can be um you know, more sedentary. It can be intellectual. I had a great response from the New York Times essay that I wrote on the subject a couple of years ago. And one of my favorite ones was a guy who wrote in and said, you know, oh my God, thank you for writing this. I'm 70 years old and I'm passionate about ancient languages and I'm studying ancient ancient Greek and Latin and I really suck at it, but it makes me happy. And I thought, oh, that is just perfect. I love that my surfing sort of related in some way to his studying ancient Greek and Latin. And I thought, yeah, that's the point. That's the point. Do something you love. doesn't matter if you're good at it.
0: There's a story that you told in the beginning of the book, and Mm -hmm. it was about your son who wasn't very good at writing. And your husband, Mm -hmm. he gave him some sage words. Can you just share that story? Because I think a lot of us can relate to that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's uh it's also the genesis of this idea, and um it, it wasn't it wasn't at my husband was there, but it was actually a, a a friend, a mutual friend, and the father of a fellow student. So my son Rocco, and for those of you who read the book, you'll see a lot of Rocco in this book. because I surf with him mostly, um, uh, but at that time Rocco was about eight years old, and he had some. Um, fine motor skill and sensory issues and he couldn't write. He literally could not hold a pen or a pencil and write his homework. Um, it caused him pain. It caused him frustration. He understood the lessons that he was being taught, but he couldn't, he couldn't write them down. And it became an issue um, that we had to deal with um, every year in, in grammar school. So one day we were outside of the school and this John, his name was John, uh, we were talking and he said, how's Rocco doing in school this year? And Rocco was standing right next to me. And I said, oh, he's doing OK, but he's he's having some trouble with his handwriting and it, it it's, he's really frustrated by it. Um, and I kind of looked at Rocco and he looked at me and, and then John just kind of had this amazing look on his face of just acceptance and love and he looked at Rocco and then he kind of puts his hands in his pocket and he looks up to the to the sky and he goes oh yeah Rocco it's so great to suck at something and i watched Rocco's face just kind of light up and i my heart burst and i thought oh, that's it that was the that was the opening that was forgiveness acceptance there was so much in that in that statement. And at the time, I was learning to surf. I was only a couple of years in. And I was, well, you know, I suck at it. I mean, there's a lot of that in these pages as well. But I was really struggling and thinking, why am I doing this? Should I give up? And John's words not only gave Rocco permission to suck at handwriting, which is something essential, by the way, um, but he worked around it. Um, But it gave me permission to just keep sucking at surfing and do it anyway. Um, and then Rocco went on to um, to be the val- valedictorian of his high school class without needing to handwrite. He still can't handwrite. He's in college and he can't read his own notes. Oh, that's how bad it is. It just doesn't matter. He has straight A's in college. He does really well. But he learned to cope. So I think the idea of this sucking at something that is essential gave me the idea that maybe sucking at something that isn't essential can actually teach us um, something and teach us coping mechanisms. And and really, that's what the whole book is about, is what what we do learn from pursuing something that we won't be good at, but we do it anyway.
0: David Romanelli is a writer and thought leader who also published a book full of life lessons. His career has spanned from opening yoga studios and doing meditation to being an entrepreneur and a writer. When he lost his last surviving grandparent in 2010, his perspective on aging and wisdom shifted. So tell us how you just got started into wellness and yoga. Just a little bit about your journey.
2: Okay, after college, I was living in LA. I was working for a sports agent. I was working for Shaquille O'Neal's agent and I took wow. a yoga class with my buddy who was in law school and it was it was Sean Corns yoga class. So she's gone on to become this very renowned yoga teacher. And it was like this incredibly physically challenging, sweating like crazy, but also deeply awakening and spiritual. And I, I was hooked. I didn't realize that you could do something spiritual and great workout at once. And there was, this was when yoga was, you know, in the nineties when it was still stodgy and people in leotards and incense sticks that wasn't mainstream yet. But there were lines down the block to get into these certain yoga classes in L.A. And so my friend and I said, let's quit our jobs. This yoga thing is going to take off. We moved somewhere where there was no yoga, Phoenix, and we opened wow. we opened a, the first boutique yoga studio in the country. So we, we got rid of the senior guru. We cranked the hip hop music. We advertised all of our Phoenix with billboards that said breathe, invited the local news crew to come do their morning live shot of people doing down dog and yoga and took off. We opened three studios. So it was a small chain called At One Yoga and we sold it in 2010 to Lifetime Fitness. So that's how I got started in wellness.
0: Wow, I had no idea. That's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yoga for you obviously probably has meant a lot of things. How did yoga and teaching yoga and owning these yoga studios then lead to book writing?
2: I started, then I started teaching yoga, a lot of yoga. And then I evolved into teaching workshops all over the country. And the idea was, how do you get more and more people doing yoga? And I started writing a blog and I loved the storytelling component of teaching yoga class more than anything. And so I started to piece together those themes into uh, my first book, which came out in 2009. And it was about like what goes on behind the scenes in the life of a yoga teacher.
0: But were you trying to take a little bit of the old school wisdom and sort of make it digestible and fun for people now?
2: Yeah, because now, now yoga is so mainstream, but back then it was, how do you explain to people that this is something that can change your life and open you and it is very relatable and it is something that you can, integrate into your day to day. So yes, that's exactly right. That's always been my MO is how do you take old wisdom and make it more relevant Mm. to people in the modern day?
0: So you wrote that first book and now life lessons from the oldest and wisest. You know, how did, how did you start getting interested in the wisdom of elders?
2: So my last surviving grandparent was in a senior living center in Los Angeles. And I noticed how depressing those places can be and how she was depressed and, mm. and all the people in there, they were, they lacked a voice in popular culture. They were sort of put out to pasture and in this old age place and they weren't in the flow of, of everyday life. It was like a different experience. And I think that was depressing for them. And yet all these older people, they had so much wisdom and so much history and they nobody was asking him for it. So there just felt like a disconnect and that became I thought that was very interesting and not right. We yeah. have to do better than that.
0: So you got interested in wisdom from elders from your from your relative, but then you met this 111-year-old woman.
2: So I my wife and I moved to New York City in 2011 and I found this charity that helps older people in need and their oldest client was this lady when i met her she was 108 she lived to be 111 so she was what they call a super centenarian there's 7 billion people on the planet there's only about 60 at any one time who are 110 or older so it's really really rare super centenarian super centenarian yeah love that and and a lot of it you know is just the genetics but some of it is attitude which i learned from this this lady Catherine is was her name she lived in a third story walk up and she walked down three flights of stairs every day until she was 104. And then she was sort of confined to her apartment. But she, I just learned a lot from her. She had just a great sense of humor. She was married five times. So. Yes, she had an appetite. <laughs> Appet- appetite, resilient too. Good for her. Resilient. I five think that was times. a big message. Yeah. I hope
0: I'm married five times. Just yeah, kidding, yeah, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Five (laughs) times. What a legend.
2: Yeah. But the greatest lesson that, that I asked her, what were your health tips? How did you get to be so old? And she did not say gluten-free diet and she did not say low carb or green juice diet. And she didn't do yoga and she didn't meditate. Her three tips were sex, vodka, and spicy food. So the, the joie de vivre was my favorite lesson from her. So loosen your grip on life and Let the magic in.
0: Have some sex, some more chocolate, and some spicy food. Yeah. Gosh, that's funny. She sounds great. So she must have really made a mark on
2: you. Well, you just saw, here's a lady at the very end of life who is vibrant and happy. And, you know, her blood pressure was lower than the 50-something-year-old Jamaican lady who was taking care of her. Like, she just was a unique that's interesting. Yeah. Unique human being. And how did she get to do that? What were her secrets? And a lot of it was just that she allowed herself to enjoy the journey of life. And I think the way most of us, myself included, the way we're living now, we, we got, our days are so busy. We put our head on the pillow, to go to sleep at night. And sometimes we don't remember a single thing that happened. It's just, you know, you squeeze so tight that you squeeze all the, the joy and the spirit out of life.
0: I get a little bit of heat on the podcast from people saying, hey, Shelby, some of your podcasts make me feel bad. And I think the thing is, is a lot of podcasters, I'm guilty of this myself, is we're doing all these podcasts on how to improve ourselves, constantly improving, constantly setting goals. I'm going to continue to do some on improving, but really it can be just exhausting. And sometimes it's just okay to just enjoy what we have. It sounds like this lady taught you a lot about that
2: not just the lady, but then I did a deep dive and so much of it is the lessons that I've learned are what you've got is really all you need. And are you making the most of your relationships because they don't last forever? Are you taking the time every day to enjoy your life? Are you bouncing back from setbacks? Because every human being on the planet's going through their own challenges. Just not everyone gets up when they get knocked down. And so there's a lot of lessons like that that basically put into perspective that you've got what you need to live a good life. It's just that we're constantly pressing for more and that is not sustainable.
0: ask both these authors who've written books about what's important in life, what lessons we can take away from them. Rather than striving for perfection, how can we strive for a life well-lived? One thing I want to work on is continuing to build a greater gratitude practice. Also, continuing to develop and have a good sense of humor, even when I'm feeling less than average. In this book, you know, during your own sucking at surfing, you had a really, you know, to say sucky again, pretty crappy thing that happened to you. Cancer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So cancer sucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What did that teach you about sucking even more?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, um. it taught me a lot about vulnerability in, in ways that I didn't accept or understand before. So I had been previously injured, um, surfing and I feel vulnerable when I'm in the ocean. I really do. I mean, when I'm in water that's too heavy for me, you know, I do get scared. And I was, I got, com- I tried to get comfortable with that vulnerability and knowing my, my, what my limits are. But surfing is a choice, right? You decide to paddle out or not. Uh, you go for that wave, you don't. You go over the falls or, well, or you go for the wave and you wipe out. Whatever that is, it's your choice. Cancer was like one of those things that you go, this is not in my list of things I thought would happen to me and so you feel very vulnerable of course because you have no control and my year of having cancer kind of really sucked because a lot of things went wrong and it taught me it taught me again vulnerability it taught me how and this is kind of counterintuitive and it's complicated but it I never understood gratitude practice mm. where people are grateful for all of the things that happen to them right so gratitude practice we start with the things that are good in our lives the love we have the friends we share the health we have and all of that i mean that's you know that's a really good practice and 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 we all do it i think in, in our own way or hope we hope we all do it in our own way but being grateful for the crap things that happen to you um It's hard, like, and I never understood it. Right? I did not. I was like, "There's, I I don't understand it. I know there's this theory, but it doesn't make sense to me." Getting cancer and having a really everything go wrong that year, and you think the bar can't get lower, and then it gets lower, and then you go, "Okay, I'm lying on the couch, and I basically feel like I'm dying because I have so much chemo in me, I can't move." Mm. And I thought, "What's left?" Right? Like, I don't know. Am I going to be okay? Am I not going to be okay? And I got hit with this wave of gratitude. And I thought, wow, how does that happen, right? Like, what? where is that coming from? I didn't know. And I realized I had just been so broken open in some way that what I allowed to rush in was gratitude. And it was gratitude that I had, you know, at that point, a family who cared about me and I had a couch to lay on even though I couldn't move and I had the treatment that was available because, by the way, that's not true for everyone, and, and then I thought, well, how, how do you be grateful even in, a in a in in you know, going beyond that? And so it, it had me thinking a lot about these things. And then the other thing it taught me was that <laughs> one of the things that I was afraid of is that I wouldn't. It's like, am I going to die? Am I going to be able to surf again? I mean, those are really two of my things. I don't want to die because I've got kids and I want to see them grow up and, and have more time with them. And, oh, my God, what if I can't surf again? And that was like well damn it I, i'm i'm going to do it and so the other thing it taught me is like how to just kick your own butt to to do the thing that you want to do even though even though i was never good at it so i was going to have to start all over at the very beginning at the thing i sucked at anyway and that proved to me somehow that it's like okay i'm i'm resilient i can do this my body can get back it took me uh, a few years actually to get my body back. I got in the water four weeks after a mastectomy and 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 the end of chemo. But those that that was not a good se- <laughs> that was not a good session. And that's in the book. But um, it took me a couple of years, and I was back at it. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, and I'm so glad you're okay. And yeah, as far
0: as we know, as far as anyone <laughs> knows, right? I think yeah. I think the yeah. thing is like when you don't have your health. That's yeah. that's like the hardest thing, yeah. And there's a lot of people who
1: don't have their health right now, and that's that's challenging. Yes, it's hard. I mean, I think the idea is that you don't have your health, and as what you want to try to do is do everything you can around that disability, that sickness, that limitation, and you know push through it as much as you can, and then to surrender to you know, to when you can't. And that surrenders hard. It's hard. There were times when I I couldn't even walk through the sand on our beach. Um, I was so sick. I literally couldn't because I would try to push myself and like, I'm going to go surf. And it's like I could barely get to the water's edge because walking through the sand was hard. And I thought, all right, well, I'll walk to the sand and then I'll walk back. And, you know, and you just kind of have to accept that limitation. And that acceptance was a great I don't want to call it a lesson cuz that's oh, hitting it too hard but it's 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 a kind of humility that you know in the face of something that you you learn to have. I think these are really good things to have. Acceptance, gratitude,
0: and then there's this third element which is having a sense of humor. And if you can laugh at yourself, totally. That's a game totally. changer. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about how humor fits into
1: all this. Yeah. So it's really the end of all of this is that Life is life is funny if you can find the humor and humor in, in even the tough stuff, right? I mean, you know, a lot of it is in the tough stuff. And some of it's dark humor and some of it is just not setting a bar so high for yourself or not taking – it's almost like not thinking that everybody's – people think that everybody's watching you and judging you and – and, and you have to perform all the time as opposed to just letting go of of that idea of what people are thinking about you because they're not. Judging yourself because that doesn't get you anywhere. And just finding it funny. You know, I, I have a one episode in, in the book where I get finned uh, by my board. I get very injured. And um, it was in a place that I probably should be too polite to name on the podcast. Oh, you can name it. It was we're, it was all... bet- it was right between my legs. The fin, you know, I had a, uh, you know, oh. a longboard fin impale me. It was in between the legs, so I literally cut myself another one, and it was it was hideous. But it was so freaking funny. I mean, <laughs> it was I couldn't walk. I had to shuffle for weeks everything turned black down there. I had 17 stitches. um, And I went to the emergency room. And you know, it was so great because the whole emergency room was just in hysterics. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard.
0: Oh, yeah. I I could imagine the jokes people must have made. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: uh, There's a lot of humor.
0: I think that's great. And you know, we're, we're in a time where I think we need humor more than ever. But it's hard to have humor. in. United States right now
2: you yes get in trouble
0: for making fun of certain things but humor to me is like ah oh, it's just the cure to everything
2: there's this lady who I do these drinks with your elders events around the country where I bring older people together with younger people and we have a glass of wine and we talk about life so there's this one event in Dallas and this lady Lorena shared a story with her, how she showed up at the event, first of all, and she thought it was an event for widows because she was a widow. And then she saw these young people drinking wine. And I had explained to her that (laughs) it was an intergenerational (laughs) gathering. It wasn't widows.
0: Sorry. I know I shouldn't laugh, but that's kind of funny.
2: It was funny. And she proceeded to tell us about how she lost her first husband Hmm. at a very young age and she had young children. And then she overcame that and she got married another time. And she was so happy and blissed out and life was amazing. And then her second husband died of a heart attack. And it was just brutal. You know, it was just so brutal. And everybody at the event was, was feeling her pain. And the room was silent and people stopped sipping their wine and kind of sat there with heavy hearts And then she told a story where she was, it was the evening before the memorial service and she was with her family and everyone was together and fooling around. And her sister's 19 year old six foot two grandson was on the floor playing. And she said, he didn't see me and he clipped me on the knees and I flew backward and broke my femur bone. So she's as if she hadn't been through enough already, you know, and then she breaks her femur bone. And she said, they put a rod in there and some screws. And with a straight face, She said, I was screwed by Rod and I didn't like it. (laughs) And she totally pierced the weight of the moment and had everyone in hysterics. And then she said, it's a hard hard world to live in. You have to laugh in life. And I thought that was such great advice because there's always something that's causing us pain. And the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh said, sometimes joy is the source of your smile, but sometimes the smile is the source of your joy. I always interpreted that to mean fake it till you make it. And as Lorena finished her story that night in Dallas, we lifted our wine glasses high in the air and the toast was to life, to love, to laughter.
0: I love that. I'm a big fan of laughing even when things are hard. And I'm a big fan of Thich Hahn. Han.
2: Yeah, that's yeah.
0: That's really cool. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear more from David and Karen about the important things in life. I just heard about a new podcast about nature called The Wild by the folks at KUOW in Seattle. It's hosted by Chris Morgan, an ecologist and filmmaker who gets up close to all kinds of animals, from wolves, and mountain lions, to beavers, and on one of the episodes, he talks about the first time he caught a grizzly bear. The Wild uncovers the surprising connections we share with animals and the wild around us. It does it in a way that highlights the resilient power of nature and the wonder of the outdoors, I'm excited to check it out and you can too at KUOW.org forward slash the wild. That's KUOW.org forward slash the wild or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I've really had to work on even with this podcast is getting over perfectionism. It's hard and even scary to put something out into the world when you feel like there's a million tweaks and little changes that could always be made. But according to Karen, being a perfectionist is just an excuse to not do something scary. I want to talk more about sucking and one of the opposite parts of sucking. And you mentioned it is you have to let go of perfectionism. And there's this line in the book where you said perfectionism is a trap. It's fear. And I love that you say anyone critical of themselves Is always critical of others. So if there's someone you know who's just so critical, Mm -hmm. they're probably like beating themselves up all day anyway.
1: So just let that person go. Oh, that is great. That's great advice. And that's yeah, well said. I think the idea, you know, that this is something that stuck in my craw or from years ago, where people say, "Oh, I'm," you know, "Oh, I'm such a perfectionist." That, and it's always. You know, fill in excuse, right? I'm such a perfectionist that I can't finish anything. I'm such a perfectionist that I won't start. And I always felt sad when I heard that from people. And I thought, really, are you really a perfectionist? Are you are the things are are, are the other things that you do do perfect? Because I, I don't think anything I do is perfect. There is nothing that even comes close to it. And then when you dig into it, um, Alfred Adler, who was a early 20th century uh, Viennese psychologist, did a lot of writing about this idea of perfection, which he says is a very innate striving, right? Because if we didn't strive, we would never learn anything. You know, we as children, as babies, you have to constantly strive to talk, to walk, to move, to have agency, to, you know, to do things. But that, that striving can get kind of um, convoluted by this idea of attaining perfection. And so he talks about something called there's this this abnormal striving for perfection and normal striving for perfection. And the normal striving for perfection says I'm going to try to improve. And by the way, sucking at something, you know, has that normal striving, not for perfection, but a normal striving. You you keep doing it because you want to get better and by the way, you will. It's just that getting better doesn't mean you're going to be great at it and I'm saying let that go completely but the abnormal striving for perfection says and there have been recent studies on this um, that I can't cite just offhand, but they're out there and the studies basically say that the striving for the abnormal striving is really a person's feeling that they won't be loved unless they are perfect and of course since you mm-hmm. can't ever be perfect it's feeling that you're not lovable and it's it's a trap and it's a heartbreak and if we understand that this striving is something that is basically impossible this abnormal striving for perfection and we can let that go all of a sudden you don't have that excuse of oh i'm a perfectionist you just go yeah i'll just i'll just i'll just do it and if it doesn't work out i'm still you know you know dot 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 i'm still lovable i'm still worthy of love and I think that's a hard thing for people. I mean it's hard for everybody. It's hard, you know, we don't like screwing up, we don't like seeing ourselves as kooks, you know, in anything that we do, because we think people are gonna not like us as much. And that's just it's just not true. And I think it's that openness and the vulnerability and the and the trying that actually brings people to us. It's it's it seems it's counterintuitive but if you think about it it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think I think we're actually in this time where people are embracing
0: kookto. Like we like it when <laughs> yeah. people are just them
1: themselves mm. and they're not trying to be anything else. I mean, you can't open yourself up for all of the beauty in the world if you are afraid that you're afraid of what you're going to find. Afraid to enter a community, I think that's another thing. I mean, even I, I think when I started surfing, didn't understand that the community of surfers was going to become so important to me. Uh, just a community of people, because I thought, oh, I could never be part of that community. Um, You know, I su- I'll suck at it. And actually, it's the opposite. People have been incredibly welcoming and helpful and kind. Kindness is something that comes from sucking. I mean, Shelby, when you and I surfed, Together, like I wanted help from you. And it was hard for me to ask you for help, even and, and you said, Oh, I remember you said, Oh, you want help? Oh my God, I just I'd love to help you. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna get some help. And then you called me into some waves and it was amazing. But those moments where I get help while surfing are the most beautiful moments for me because it invites the generosity and kindness. And when you invite generosity and kindness, it's not only that you get to experience it, that the the asker. The giver gets to experience. And that is a gift. It's a gift that just goes back and forth. And to me, that's one of the it, it it's one of the best things about sucking. And by the way, I didn't even come to that until way later, until I got over my mortification of being bad at it and I started asking people for help.
0: Well, I think that's a really good point about the communities because we're all adventurers. Uh, who tune into right. this podcast and right. I think those communities of elite skiers elite snowboarders elite mountaineers rock mm-hmm. climbers surfings there's kind of jerks in all those and it's intimidating and <laughs> yeah people can be yeah. kind of elitist but you can break through that like
1: facade of jerkdom or whatever it is when you ask them for help the community is the most beautiful part of it and i think a lot of what people are missing i think people are lonely i do and i think the loneliness is isolation and not being part of community and it's hard to become part of a new community if you're going to start something new and you're afraid to suck at it and my point is so what like go to that pottery studio you know pick up that guitar you know, and start, you know, go to that ballet class, go to that salsa class, you know, whatever it is, go find, there are people who love, who will love it that you're interested, you know, go play bridge, you know, bridge is really hard. I know people who started playing bridge really late in life. And, and it's a hard thing to do. And it's like, it's scary, right? Because the people are going to roll their eyes and say, Oh, God, you're screwing up my game. But you go, and then all of a sudden, you're part of this community, and you're not lonely anymore.
0: One of the biggest things we have to hold on to when we think about living a good life is perspective. It's easy to lose sight of it, especially these days with people promoting the Instagram perfect lives and everyone talking about how great their side hustles are and how they're able to work like five jobs and have a family and do it all plus more. It's something that David talked a lot about with the elderly folks he's interviewed for his book. Anything else that really stuck out for you?
2: Oh, so many. I mean, a lot of it was perspective, That generation, uh, often called the greatest generation, they went through during World War II, like the hardest of times, Um, whether they're World War II veterans or Holocaust survivors or everybody's got a story about that time in life and how hard it was. And so it puts everything in perspective about the problems and struggles that we're having, not to say they're not real but it's a great shift in perspective. Like one Holocaust survivor said, her granddaughter sometimes complains about her issues and she'll say to her, honey, you don't really know what issues are. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody ever wants to hear that. But when you talk to that generation and you hear what their issues were, you realize like, okay, I can I can manage.
0: And didn't you say one person you spoke to was, was alive during that time when and she was a senior in high school and half her class got shipped to the war.
2: Yeah, that was a lighter story. I mean, she was in Salt Lake and- the whole senior class got shipped off to World War II and only half of them came back. But oh. the most intense was a Holocaust survivor who I have a whole chapter about in my book who lives a couple a couple miles away from me in Los Angeles. And she survived Auschwitz, but she lost all 10 of her family members in the gas chambers, both sets of grandparents, her parents, and her three siblings. And she'll sit there and she told me this story about she was had a hand her three and a half year old baby sister to her mom. And they she watched them walk into the gas chambers. And, and to this day, she's stone cold, um, hardened to life and happiness, and you know has a lot of sadness. The only time that I saw her smile was when I brought my two-year-old over to visit her. Oh. And that intergenerational magic uh, really brought out the joy
0: yeah, that's that's so interesting. I think it's really interesting what you said though about taking your kid to see her. I feel like there is this magic between babies and older people or little kids and older people. And in some ways, they're the same with some yeah. perspective.
2: Yes. Yeah, I met a one of the chapters in my book there was a guy who I just did an event with him last week and he's he's 101 and he's filled with so much vitality and i interestingly enough he at, he's very involved in his synagogue and he asked me to meet him on the playground and he was surrounded by all these very little like preschoolers who knew his name and he knew their name and he kind of was like immersed in that energy of youth and i think that's part of his magic is that he draws from that energy and they draw from him and there's something to be said about the very old and the very young and that synergy is, is special. We need to get those generations together and have mixed the generations. I think our society is segregated by age and, and that doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, there's, well, and we live in an area where ageism is, is pretty real. Yeah. We talk about like, oh, he look. I even say, oh, she looks old. She looks young.
2: There was one story where I had a lady who was 93 and I asked her at the end of the conversation to send me a picture so that I uh, emailed me a picture and she said, I don't have email. Can I mail it to you? And I said, that'll take like a week. Can't you just email it to me? And so she said, I'll have my granddaughter do it. I, she, let, me, let me write down your email address Aww. and I will, and I'll do it. So it took like five minutes. Then at first I was getting really impatient because you know, nowadays, like if somebody takes up an extra two minutes of your, your work day, it's frustrating. And I I realized at a certain point, like I needed to take my own medicine and and loosen my grip. And this was actually really funny. And the joke was on me, not her, because I was so impatient. I didn't have have two minutes to give her my email address, you know. But I think it's very relatable because we get very impatient with people now. That's so so cute. Another great lesson I learned was just about parenting. Like this one lady gets on the phone with me and she says – she was has nothing to share with me that's going to be of interest. And then she tells me she she waited tables and she was a mom and her, her mom would come babysit and she'd get home at 2 a.m. exhausted mm-hmm. and she would go in her kid's room and then, you know, little kids sleeping and she'd rub their head and just sit by their bed for hours. And she could never go to their sports practices because she was always working, but she made sure they had everything they needed. And it was a different kind of relationship with their children, but now in their older age, her kids love her and they have a really close relationship because she showed up for them when she could and as best she could. And that was a huge lesson to me. Cause you think as a parent, you need to, it's like, what are you buying for your kids? And are you giving them the nicest things so they can feel good about themselves? And you forget that really all the kids want and need is like the, is the love and, and the presence.
1: And presence. so that was a great
2: lesson for me as a parent, like, I'm not going to get this all right, but I, if I love them as best I can, when I can, good things will happen. So that was a good one too.
0: That's really good. I interviewed Jesse Itzler earlier this year and he broke down, he like dissected how many hours he has left with his parents in terms of, he just knew how old they were and the average age is this age. And he's like, if I only see my parents twice a year, I have 10 exact visits with them.
2: That's so true. I mean, that's how, if you think about it like that, you know,
0: I like booked a trip with my mom to Hawaii right away and we've never done that. We had so much fun. You know, my mom like returned 8 million things in the restaurant, but we had so much (laughs) fun. We went to an Elvis show and we went to, we went swimming together. We hiked diamond head and she was hilarious. It was so, uh, yeah.
2: And one more story I like to tell that when you speak to older people you don't always get their wisdom in chronological order. And sometimes they're telling you things you don't know what they're talking about or where it's coming from. And I found some of those are some of the most meaningful stories. Like one lady, Nell, I think she's 85. And she just randomly started telling me the story as she worked in hospice. And her first day in hospice, she they asked her to go into this room and there's this lady in her early 30s who's dying, and she's, she's a mother, a young mother, and Nell's just overcome with sadness. She starts crying, and the lady says, why are you crying? And Nell says, I just feel so sad. And the lady says, well, can you, can you shave my legs? She says, I don't want to die with hairy legs. Can you shave my legs? So Nell's kind of confused, but she runs down the hall. She gets the soap and the, the razor. She shaves her legs. She said it was, they have this beautiful conversation. The lady dies that night and Nell says I learned from that show up where people are rather than where you think they are so I didn't really know what what she why she told me that what it meant and a few days later I'm in the car with my daughter who's 1 years old at the time and we're in LA gridlock and my daughter's crying and stressful as a parent and I try to give her the you know the snacks she didn't want it I try to put on the kids music she didn't want it finally I said to her like what do you want? And she said, Hold hand, hold hand. And all she wanted was me to put my hand back and she oh. and just held on to my finger and she was perfectly fine the rest of the drive. And so then that whole the dots connected. Show up where people are rather than where you think they are. Don't just assume that you know what somebody needs. Like it's a really good practice to say, what do you need? ask somebody like, what can I do for you? What do you need? Not just make the assumption. So those kinds of stories that come from nowhere, they're out of context, but they sit with you and you kind of marinate on them and and they end up being like these really great nuggets of wisdom that, that, that are profound in my opinion.
0: Being successful in life doesn't mean you have to climb mountains or drop into giant waves. It can mean just being present, paying attention, and appreciating the people and experiences around you. Success is taking care of yourself and those around you so we can all lead happier, healthier lives. Sometimes it can be hard to be okay with where we are right now. It can be hard to remember to focus on the important stuff in life. That's a big part of why I wanted to make this episode. I think it's really interesting. You live in New York City. Mm -hmm. I live close to L.A., We're both in these industries and I I think it must be even, I mean, I know it's really bad in LA. It's it's getting like that in San Diego. It's a bit of a rat race. Like, and I think a lot (laughs) of us are, are always chasing greener grass and social media doesn't help. Maybe it does. I don't know. Actually, there's some people on social media who just are posting such ridiculous, awesome stuff that's so authentically themselves. It's it's pretty awesome. But yeah, you know, any any parting words of wisdom. I mean, the point of this podcast is, I really wanted to show people, like, hey, I know we do a lot of podcasts about self improvement, but being okay with average or who you are is pretty rad, and the most wild thing you can do.
1: Yeah, no, I I and and by the way that doesn't mean that like, you know, again, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue. It's like it's about the pursuit of passions without the expectation of being an expert. It's about you know you know being okay with mediocrity not in everything we do but I, I think what happens is that if we say i love to dance you love to dance like i want to sing you know i'll never be a good singer right but um you know whatever it is it's like i, I can do it part way and and sort of release myself from a kind of toxic self judgment um and the and in that release of that self judgment it opens you up to find joy where you wouldn't find it in other ways. So, I think you close your if you close yourself off to experience, you're closing yourself off to joy and love and community. And then what when you practice something that you're not great at, right? And practice it with kind of an open heart and with joy, it teaches you things like resilience, like self-compassion, like letting go of you know busting the myth of perfectionism and and you know taking off that mask of cool that we all want to wear and go ah the hell with it like you know I'm not cool and then if you move away from our noisy egos right it's endless what we can learn from sucking at something all of
0: this is really about you know why achieving is important, but maybe not the most important. Maybe we can be more okay with just average or more okay with what we have.
2: I mean, listen, I'm in it too. I'm 45. I have friends all day long sending me clips to podcasts with great tips on health, and I embrace a lot of them. I want to maximize my fitness level and my mental Strength and acuity in my diet, so I'm I'm in that game, but at a certain point, I mean, at least once each day, I think we've got to push back from our computer and take a breath and be happy with who we are and and, and what we've got, because otherwise, it's just like you know, one thing I learned in talking to older people is most older people are not like that 111 year old lady. A lot of older people are really worried. If they're going to have enough, who's showing up for them, or they're really resentful because th- things didn't go their way. And what happens is those conditions follow you. So if you're kind of a worrier when you're 42, and you'll be a lot more worried when you're 52 and really worried when you're 82. And if you're kind of resentful when you're 28, and you'll be more resentful when you're 38 and really resentful when you're 88. So these con- conditions follow you. And that's what I try to talk about. What I talk about in my book, Happy is the New Healthy is there has to be a certain point like right now where you decide to bust loose from the conditions that you tie to your life and your happiness. You know, I'll be happy when I, my kids get into college and I'll be happy when I pay off my credit card bill and I'll be happy when it's summertime. And I think there has to be a certain point where you realize those conditions are going to, they're never going to go away. There's always going to be a new condition. And you come to a point where you bust loose from all these conditions that you tie to your existence and your happiness. And the mantra is I'm happy now. And I think it's really, really important. And one of the things I talk about when I give talks in corporate environments, it's a really good practice to talk about what makes you happy. Cause everyone's talking about the things that they're struggling with, their back hurts, the, you know, the uh, traffic's really bad, their team lost last night. And you just perpetuate that kind of, complaining and that whining, but when you talk about, okay, here's what's making me happy today. I saw the sunrise. My daughter gave me a kiss goodnight and told me she wants to have a beautiful day with me. And you, whatever it is that brought you a moment of joy, talk about that. And you perpetuate and spread the contagion of joy as easily as you would spread the contagion of, of you know, malcontent. So that's some of the advice I like to give.
0: There's a lot of content out there in the world right now about how to be better, how to run faster, how to be healthier, that kind of thing. I'm going to keep doing shows that promote healthier living, but all of that constant improving, it can sometimes be exhausting. It's not always about being better, bigger, faster, or stronger. It's not always about chasing the greener grass. It's about being okay with where you are right now. And that's the whole point of this podcast, to live with intention and pave your own path whether it's a path in your neighborhood where you walk your dog or a trail up a mountain that you climb on a multi-day trek or a path that you have to forge yourself through the jungle with your own rusty machete. My hope is that in hearing stories of others who chase their wild ideas, you'll have the courage to chase yours too. This podcast is produced by REI with the help from Annie Fassler and Chelsea Davis. Tune in week after next for an episode that was very much inspired by this one. I'll be talking to a woman who survived Auschwitz. She has an incredible story about human resilience and the power of choice. This week, I hope you remember that it's okay to be average. Living a life full of intention, positivity, gratitude, that's the important stuff. And if you like this podcast, I'd love it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this show. Ideally, an above average review though. Wherever you are, please remember, Some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.